When you read the scriptures, or when you ponder who God is and what it means to be a follower of God, do you, do you typically think that God is going to surprise you with something? I think most of us have this sense of we have God pretty well figured out. And when we read the scriptures and when we ponder what it means to be a follower of God and who God is and the things related to God, we're looking for things that affirm what we feel we already have believed about God. And we often are hesitant about things that may surprise us and sometimes hostile toward things that may surprise us. When I read the 87th Psalm, I find some surprising things that the psalmist speaks to us here. Now, when he begins, it really is no surprise. He begins by saying, he has set his foundation on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. It is really no surprise that God declares, Jerusalem is my favorite city. Now, you may, you know, I don't know the town in which you were raised. I was raised, lived for about seven years from the age of one to eight in a little town in southern Indiana of Mitchell. And if you drive into the town of Mitchell to this day, there's, there are signs virtually on every road coming into this little town of four or 5,000 people that says, Home of Astronaut Gus Grissom. And we lived on Grissom Street. And, you know, the, and the, he unfortunately was one of the three astronauts that died in a fire in 1967 in a, in, a, in a test capsule. And the city mourned greatly his passing. But he is the famous person that has come out of Mitchell, Indiana. Then you drive through a lot of towns and you will often see boyhood home of, hometown of, or we're famous for. You know, and some of those you would expect. You go to Dalton, Georgia, they are the carpet capital of the world. And they declare that. Thomasville, North Carolina says they are the furniture capital of the world. Las Vegas declares they are the entertainment capital of the world. Some of them you may not know. Holt, California, for instance, declares itself to be the carrot capital of the world. It's even a little bit orange, I think, in that city. And um, Cairo, Georgia is the okra capital of the world. Some of the places that you go to, you may wonder, why would you promote that? You know, Beaver, Oklahoma claims to be the cow chip capital of the world. That's not a parade I want to go to, right? And then Gilroy, California is the garlic capital of the world. You want to know that before you get involved in that festival, probably. You know, Dodge City, Kansas, the the wickedest little city in America. I would suspect that name in itself draws people to go to see what this is about in Dodge City, Kansas, or Kansas. People have named Cleveland, Ohio. I don't think Cleveland took this as the mistake on the lake. Uh, If they chose that themselves, there's a whole self-esteem issue that needs to be dealt with with that one, but... And, and I saw them in Bellingham, Washington. Their phrase is just, let us surprise you. I don't even know what that means. What exactly is that saying? But when, when the psalmist writes here, he's saying among all the things that you could say. And you think about Paul, Paul, West Virginia declares that they are almost heaven. I don't know if that came from the John Denver song or if the song came from that. But there is this, this feeling of 
of importance by what we declare about ourselves as a, as a town, as a city. Something to make us feel like we have some value and worth and significance. And it is no surprise that if you were to drive into ancient Jerusalem, you might see a sign that says, Jerusalem, God's favorite city. I mean, after all, the Old Testament is all about the Israelites, God's chosen people, and Jerusalem is their capital. They are God's people, so why wouldn't they declare Jerusalem is God's favorite city? In Israel and in all the earth. It really shouldn't surprise us that they make this declaration. What does surprise us is verse 4. And the big surprise here is that he says, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre, along with Cush, and will say, this one was born in Zion. The big surprise here is that God says, my beloved city is not just for the Israelites, it is for all people. And this list of 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 nations that he chooses here is not just it's not just people who happen to live around Israel. These are their these are their enemies. This is not just surprising. This is shocking. You know, Egypt who enslaved them for four hundred years. God says, "Come on, you're welcome." Philistia, the nation that just is like a burr in their saddle for centuries, and and you go back to David and Goliath, and they're just fighting each other all the time. And God says, Philistia, come on, you're welcome. I want you here. And Babylon, the nation that destroys Jerusalem and takes the people into captivity, God says, yeah, you're welcome here too. This is your place. And to to an ancient Israelite, not just surprising, not just stunning, this is shocking. That God would open the, the doors to his beloved city to these pagan enemies of his people. And it reminds us that God's plan from the beginning is not exclusion, it's inclusion. And the Israelites forget that. And the church has forgotten that far too often. We go back to the book of Genesis. God calls Abraham out and he says, I'm going to make a great nation of you, not just so you can be a great nation. I'm making a great nation of you so that you will be my witness to all the nations of the world because I want to be with all of them. I want them all to know me. I want them all to come to me. They are all welcome in my beloved city. They're all welcome in the kingdom. And there are nations of the world today where you and I, if we're really honest with each other, would say, I'm not sure I want God to welcome them. I'm not sure they deserve an open door to the kingdom. They're too evil. They're too pagan. They have mistreated God's people. I don't really think, there's a lot of nations, that's fine, but there are some, I don't think so. And this psalm, the big surprise of this psalm is that God says, I welcome them too. The doors are open to them as well. Now, this is not universalism. This is not, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you think about God. If you reject God, 
that's okay, you can get in. That's not what he's talking about. He says in verse 4 that these are people who acknowledge me. These are people who want to know God, who want to experience all that God wants to give. They want to live in God's holy city. They aren't being, you know, they, they aren't being made to do this. They want to do it. There is a yearning in their heart for something more than what they know. And God is the only answer to that. And he knows that. And he welcomes them. It reminds us that how often we create boxes for the ways in which God works. And those boxes tend to look like the ways worked in our lives. And the things that make us feel comfortable and satisfied and and careful. And if anything, we worship a God who is not careful. He is a risk-taking God. And we are often so concerned about making sure that our box looks right, that it's shaped right, that all the borders are exactly the way they should be. And we're thinking much more about exclusion while all the while God is trying to break the walls of our boxes to be inclusive. I know those can be code words for things that are theologically way outside the realm of what Scripture talks about. And that's not what I'm talking about. But our problem in the evangelical church is really very seldom being too inclusive. Our problem most of the time is drawing such narrow boxes that people can't get in if they want to. We want people to look like us and to think like us and to act like us and to, and, to, and to believe every single detail of what we believe or we consider them unworthy outside the fold. And until they match up with us exactly precise, sorry. It's a str- it was a struggle of the New Testament church. You go to, to Acts 15 and they're wrestling whether Gentiles have to become Jews before they become Christians. They have to follow all the rituals of Judaism. Basically, do they have to become Jewish proselytes in order to, for, to then become a, a follower of Jesus? And, and the church council in Jerusalem took great pains to think through this issue and pray through this issue. And they came to this the very clear decision, no. Absolutely not. There were many in the church who wanted to draw the box of Judaism around God and around Christ. And they said no. And through the centuries, the church has continued to wrestle with making boxes that look like us instead of trying to build bridges to people who look different from us. It's God's plan from the beginning. His desire from the beginning is not just to save one group of people. But the whole world. It's about the whole world. We're reminded of the fact that we we can come to God in a variety of different ways. C.S. Lewis said that he was the most reluctant convert in the world. He went kicking and screaming into the kingdom. And yet, look at his life. And John Wesley was raised in a, in, in a minister's home and he knew all the scriptures and he knew everything about the church and he had all the rituals right and he became a missionary. He did all the right things, but he was living distant from God until that, that Wednesday night of May 24th, 1738, 
sitting in a service and he felt his heart strangely warmed. And God took that warm heart and changed England and the world. Or about a man I read about who lived in Sanibel Island, Florida, who's retired from, from an executive position at McGraw Hill Publishers, and he was a good man. He was on the vestry council of his church, and he, he served on the city council, and, and, and people loved him. And one weekend he went to a, a, a spiritual retreat, and people were talking about relationship with Jesus, and he didn't know that, he hadn't heard that before. And by the time the weekend was over, he said he fell in love with Jesus. And he came back and his friend said, what happened to you? And he said, I, I fell in love with Jesus. I met Jesus. And they said, you know, before he was a good man. Now he's a new man. And I think about my own journey. I was raised in a, in a Christian home. Christian family, Christian extended family, Christian extended extended family. I, I was thinking about that this week. I had two great uncles that I can remember as a child, the only two family members that I was aware of who were not Christians. And they became Christians later on in their lives. There were eight or nine ministers in my family. You know, I've said this to you before, you know, the only arguments we had at pot, family potlucks was who was going to pray. You know, we... Everybody was a Christian. That's all I knew. In church all the time, everything about our lives was about Christ. Family devotions, pray before meals, talking about Christ was as, as easy as talking about anything else. But my struggle was trying to fit into the box that everyone said I needed to fit into. And that was to have some kind of emotional experience. Some kind of dramatic moment when I went from not being a Christian to being a Christian. And I wrestled with that for the longest time. And it created in my soul a sense of fear and anxiety and worry. Because I didn't have that kind of experience that people talk. I tried to have that experience. I can't tell you how many times you know, go to the altar on the sixth verse of Just As I Am. Or whatever it was they were singing. You know, camp meetings and all of these things. Trying to manufacture an experience and so I finally came to the realization I didn't have to have that experience. My heart wasn't going to be dramatically different. I didn't have the experience of, of not following Christ, not wanting to, to know Christ, to now knowing him. It was just more of a day-by-day -day kind of life decision that came to me of choosing what Christ wanted or not, and wrestling with that and moving forward. If you could be born a Christian, I would have been. And all of my life, it was, that's all I knew. And until I came to the point of realizing I didn't have to live in that box that other people created, when that moment came, then I found joy. And I found peace and freedom. The reality is God created us so different. He put us in different places. He, he, he put us through different experiences. We live in different realms of the world. So why would we think he was gonna, he's going to treat us all exactly the same in our journey with him? And I suspect with the group this size, we probably have as many people as there are here, that many stories of our journey with Christ.
But we love creating boxes and formulas. And God is continually shattering the walls of our boxes, shattering the, the, the logic of our formulas, because he is so much bigger than that. And while we're trying to limit the ways in which God works, he's continually trying to expand the ways in which he works. To reach the whole world. And if an Israelite can write this psalm about all the nations of the world, the enemies of Israel coming into Jerusalem and being welcomed there, what would make us think that we can't write some incredible stories and songs as well? And I'm fascinated by the fact that even the bigger surprise is that not only are these nations now welcomed into the city, they are treated as though they are native-born citizens. He says in verse 4, of them they will say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. The Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. And you know, sometimes we welcome people who are different into the city. We just push them to the margins. We don't, we don't want them to get too involved. We don't want them to have too much say. We don't want them to, to become too popular. To be, we don't want them to take over things because they're really second-class citizens. They don't know as much as we know. They haven't been through what we've been through. They don't believe quite what we believe. And so while we welcome them, we welcome them hesitantly. And we move them off to the side and we put them in the second-class housing. And the psalmist says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Everybody who's here is here. Everybody who's in is in. The biggest surprise maybe of this whole thing is verse 7, where he says, and they make music, as they make music, they will sing, all my fountains are in you. I have in my mind two images of that verse. One is people of Israel and the people of Philistia and the people of Egypt and the people of Babylon and the people of all these nations gathering around in the center of the city around the temple, singing the praises of God, holding hands, joining arms, lifting their voices in praise of God who has brought them all together. But the other image I have in my mind is of all of these nations that have been welcomed into the city standing around holding hands and locking arms and singing praises to God while the Israelites stand in the back going, this is ridiculous. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. We were here first. We're God's chosen people. We, we ought to be, they shouldn't have the same place in this city as we have. And I'm convinced that that the primary means by which people we might consider enemies of God and enemies of his people, the primary means by which they feel welcomed into this beloved city is the spirit of God's people toward them.
It is the spirit of God's people, this welcoming, inviting spirit that causes people who are hesitant to come to say, I'm really welcome there. You really want me? I didn't think you would. I mean, after all that's happened, after what we've done to you, after our history, you really want me to be a part of this? And it's God's people saying, yeah, come on, come on, join us. Join in the song. Here are the words. Here's what we do. You're a part of this now. It causes people to say, I I think I'd like that. I think I want to be a part of that. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus tells in the 20th chapter of Matthew's gospel about the workers in the vineyard. You know, Jesus goes, the master goes into the marketplace and guys are standing around at six in the morning. They're looking for work. They need some money. He says, look, I'll hire some of you. I'll pay you a, 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 a denarius of wages if you'll come work for me today. Great. So a handful of them go out and they start working. And he goes back a couple of hours later and there are more guys there now. And he said, I'll hire you and pay you what is right. They say, great. And they go work. And throughout the day, he keeps getting people until even the last hour he goes in. He gets a, another group and they go work. And when the day is done, he lines them all up and he pays them with the people who came last. He pays them first. And he hands them a denarii. The same thing he promised the guys who started out the day from the beginning. And they're thinking, wow, this is awesome. And he goes to the next group and he hands them a denarii. And the people who were there the whole day are thinking to themselves, wow, if he gave them a denarii, he's going to give us a whole lot more. And he doesn't. He gives them all the same thing. And what do they do? Do they say, you know what? I'm so glad you're generous. Thank you for what we got. No, they whine, they complain, they sulk because it's not fair. They worked longer. They did more. They deserve more. And the master says, hey, you don't have the right to be generous. I mean, really, I was pretty generous with you. I'm paying you more than really a day's wages is even worth. Don't you want me to be generous with you? as I'm generous with them. And sometimes we have a tendency to sit back and sulk because God is blessing other people, because God is moving in ways in other places of the world, because God is raising up leaders in the world who we may think less of. And God says, why would I not want to be generous with them? And I want to be generous with you too, Maybe your attitude or perspective is not allowing me to. But I'm generous with everybody. Why can't everyone just join hands and sing my praises because of what I've done for you? And I think the reason we struggle with that, the reason we wrestle with, with sulking and whining and, is because we have forgotten that everything we have is a gift of grace. Somehow we have convinced ourselves that what we have, some of it at least, we've earned. We deserve. The good that's in our lives, the blessings we have, we have being born in this nation, having all of the privileges we have, knowing everything that we know, we believe we're, we deserve it. We're better than other people. And we forget it's all about grace. You'll notice at the top of the psalm, it says that in the title of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are the temple musicians. 
They, they write many of the songs. They, they, uh, they talk, they are the ones who sing, lead the, the worship there. And they're, they're sort of like um, the Isaac Watts and the Charles Wesley of their day. They're the, the Bach and the Handel of their day. They're the Bill Gaither of their day. They're the Chris Tomlin, uh, Keith and Kristen Getty of their day. They, they are the people who, the, who the, the, people, the, the Israelites look to to lead them in music when they come for worship. And they are revered and respected as worship leaders. They have an interesting history. They're called the sons of Korah because they go back to their descendant whose name was Korah. And his story is told about in the 16th chapter of the book of Numbers. The people of Israel have just come out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea and they are getting established, preparing themselves to go into the promised land. And God is meeting with Moses and he's giving him the law and he's giving, them, uh, giving him all of the, the regulations and what it's going to mean for them to be God's people. And he's sharing all of it with them. And Moses has definitely become the leader of the people. Korah is his cousin, the cousin of Moses and Aaron. And Korah doesn't really like, as a Levite, he's not real pleased with the assignment he's been given. He believes he can lead these people just as well as Moses, probably better. And so he incites a rebellion of 250 leaders against Moses and Aaron. And they've got the people riled up, they've got the whole place riled up, and they are ready to end Moses and Aaron's leadership reign. And so Moses cries out to God. He says, what do you want me to do? And he says, tomorrow, I'll show you who's, who's my leader. And they get together the next day. And they're all holding censers with, with uh, incense in them. And God says to Moses and Aaron, back away from Korah and the 250 people with him. Back away from their tents. And I'll show you who I, who's in charge here with me. And they back away and the ground opens up and swallows Korah and all of the people who have been following him into the earth. God has spoken. That's pretty definitive. I would think that if that were what the name Korah is associated with, I might name myself something else. There's got to be some other person in their lineage, the next guy along, to call that, to to say the sons of somebody else. And yet 12 psalms are attributed to very clearly the sons of Korah. And it makes me wonder if they don't do that on purpose. To remind them that the reason they can sing songs of grace like this 87th Psalm is because they recognize oh so clearly that they are nothing but recipients of grace. The ver- their very existence is because God was gracious and didn't destroy all of Korah's sons with him. And God has not just spared them in that moment, but eventually raises them up to be in positions of leadership in the temple as the people come together to worship. It is a blatant act of a gracious God. And every time they stand up to lead worship and they, they declare themselves the sons of Korah, a little, a little light goes off in their heads. Man, God is gracious. And I'm convinced 
The only reason we will ever sing songs of grace toward other people is when we have convinced ourselves and remind ourselves again and again and again that we are people of grace. That everything we have, everything we know, everything of God in our lives, everything good that we have ever done is only because of the grace of God to us, individually and collectively. And when we start building boxes, when we start becoming a church of, that's exclusive instead of inclusive, a church that's thinking about how we ought to keep out instead of how can we get everybody in, it's because we've forgotten that we are all recipients of grace. And that's it. There's an old Hebrew legend about Abraham sitting outside of his tent one night, one evening when a, a traveler came by. He was weary from age, from the journey. Abraham could see he was struggling, and so he ran to him, and he, he helped him into the tent, and he gave him a seat, and he began to wash his feet, and he set before him food and drink. And much to Abraham's astonishment, the man, without any prayer or blessing, just began to eat the meal. And Abraham said, don't you worship God? And the man said, no, I worship fire only. I don't worship any other God. And Abraham became so incensed at that man's response. He jumped up and he grabbed him by the shoulders and he threw him out of the tent into the cold night air. It was only a few seconds later that God appeared to Abraham and said, where's the stranger who was here? And Abraham said, oh, I tossed him out because he doesn't worship you. And God said, really? He said, I've been patient with this guy for 80 years, even though he continues to dishonor me. You couldn't put up with him one night? We do those things when we forget grace. So as you think about people, people groups, nations of the world, unlikely people, do you sense that your heart is open or closed? Do you sense a spirit of love or apathy. Welcome or rejection. Father, we thank you for this psalm that reminds us how much we owe you everything. How much we need you to work in our hearts. That we might be agents of grace.
We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.